0: This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at TransformativePrincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Thank you to our sponsor, Can Do You. CanDoU helps busy principals create the school culture they've always dreamed of through motivational speeches, engaging videos, and leadership camps that are packaged together for schools that want to see real change. Go to CanDoU.us slash Jethro to schedule your call today. And if you sign up before the end of the summer, you'll receive a big, huge TV for your lobby to recognize all the amazing things that your students are doing every single day. That's can do you. C-A-N-D-O, the letter U, dot U-S, slash Jethro. My name is Jennifer Kronk
1: from the Assist Learning Podcast. I'm a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at
0: edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Welcome to Transformative Principle, episode 235. I am so excited to have uh, the founding or one of the founding fathers of project-based learning, Tom Markham on the podcast. Tom, thank you so much. Your history and your experience is vast and deep. And so I know we want to get to talking about right now, but could you just start by giving us a little uh, history on how you got started in project-based learning and how long you've been doing
1: it and things like that? That would be great. Yeah, thanks, Jethro. I started in the mid-90s. I was a high school teacher, and I was fortunate enough to be in a school that was basically trying to reclaim a bad reputation it had developed during the 80s and had a very good principal uh, in charge who was very forward-thinking for the time and who basically encouraged project-based learning. So I was able to work with several teaching partners and develop an academy, and that academy was all project-based for 11th and 12th graders, and that's where I pretty much cut my teeth on project-based learning. Uh, From then, uh, the school system kind of closed in. The principal left administration changed as as things do, and uh, I went on with my teaching partner to form a charter high school, and the charter high school eventually became the flagship school for Envision Schools, which is a large charter management organization in the San Francisco area with four very high-performing project-based schools. Uh, I then went on to work for the Buck Institute for Education, which is really the premier organization for pbl and i wrote their first handbook on project based learning which uh, i was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time wrote the handbook and that handbook sold 50 to 60,000 copies and really put bie on the map wow. and really influenced a lot of people uh, to take up pbl and uh, and to start looking at it as a serious way to do uh, learning in the classroom. So that was a good step forward. And from there, I've been pretty much um, working um, on my own. I have a small little uh, organization called PBL Global, Uh, small in number, but we have a very good online PBL training program. So it has a lot of global scope and reach to it. And uh, I've worked with schools ever since that uh, early 2000 period and, I added it up not long ago, and I think I've worked with close to 400 schools, and we're coming on to about 6,000 teachers and talking about PBL. So I have seen a lot of different projects.
0: Wow. Yeah, I bet you have. So project-based learning can have some different uh, definitions. Can you give us a a definition that you'd use to describe project-based learning for our conversation today?
1: Yes, it does have a number of different definitions, and that the, the number of different definitions is proliferating challenge-based learning, problem-based learning, place-based learning, case-based learning. For me, it all comes under the heading of project-based learning, and I tend, when I talk to teachers, to describe the process in very simple terms. You're setting up a problem to be solved, which is captured in a driving question, Uh, You're asking students to go through a process of investigating that question, usually working in teams, and at the end of the process, they are presenting what they found and what they've decided and what they've created in a public uh, forum to a public audience, and they are presenting their evidence of how they got there and why they made those decisions. At its heart, that's all PBL is. It's a problem-solving, project-based experience. Now, obviously, lots of variations in that definition, uh, but it's an extended learning uh, experience, sometimes two weeks, sometimes four weeks, and it's uh, generally team-based, and it is designed for students to do inquiry research and facilitated learning, let's put it that way, uh, with the teacher providing guidance, direct instruction when necessary, providing the, the leadership on the project and uh, helping the students kind of bring it to a, a fruitful conclusion. So as you hear me talk, you can see that it, project-based learning doesn't reduce itself easily to one simple definition. And that's why we have so many different definitions that are happening. But basically, it's an extended investigation around a problem that is very clear and a problem to be solved. Yeah. And what
0: I really appreciate is that you you pull in things like direct instruction. Project-based learning doesn't mean that you give a problem and then you say, no, you kids, you have to figure that out all by yourself. You are doing what the kids need when they need it to get, to help them be successful. And that those nuances I think are are really important one of the other buzzwords or catchphrases that's out there right now is the idea of personalized learning which a lot of people when they hear it they think oh we just put them in front of computers or we just turn them loose and they do their own thing but skilled teachers really do find out what that kid needs take the time to to give them what they need when they need it and and be successful and it sounds like that's what you need to do with project-based learning as well
1: Absolutely. One of the misnomers about project-based learning that uh, I and many others have worked hard to dispel is the notion that it's discovery learning, that you're not just turning kids loose to figure out everything their own. And an example I often use is, you know, you're not going to turn them loose to discover the photosynthesis cycle. That's been discovered. Just teach them about it. Show them what it is and uh, let them uh, use that knowledge to apply to uh, perhaps a deeper problem that they can uh, and a more applied problem a more authentic problem. So teacher has a very strong role in PBL. It just changes, but at times it is the role of the teacher. I actually talk about three roles that a PBL teacher has. One, the teacher as usual, direct instruction, providing knowledge, uh, teacher's mentor or guide when you're working with teams and you're doing coaching. That's a different skill set for most teachers, but that's required... And the third role is designer, because when you're taking on a two to three week or four week extended learning experience, and you're thinking about problem solving, you are really designing a learning experience. So you are a designer. So I talk a lot about teacher as designer.
0: Yeah, I, I love that idea. And um, in episode 219 of this podcast, org slash episode 219, I talked with Jeff Sandifer, who's the co-founder of Acton Academy in Texas. And that was one of his big things is that teachers are not... They're not focusing so much on the direct instruction piece, which is what teachers are trained to do and what they um, spend in traditional schools the vast majority of their time doing, but rather they're designing learning activities for the students to engage in, which takes a really different approach than it can include direct instruction. It can include mentoring, but it can also include, you know, just setting something up and letting the kids then attack that in their own way, and it could be different for each person. I love that idea of the teacher as a designer. I want to talk about that for just a second. What skills does the teacher need to have to be a designer as opposed to a direct instructor or a mentor?
1: Well, you have to have a a much better balanced and nuanced view of whose role is what. And that's something that we're all struggling with as we move into this whole new world of mid-21st century, what do you need to learn from somebody else and what do you need to discover for yourself? So you need some really nuanced view of that. I actually believe that we are headed eventually towards not even using the word teacher, or we're going to have to radically redefine the word teacher, the term teacher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I we're getting good. We're talking about teacher as co-learner. That's what I use, the co-learner philosophy, in which everybody is learning something. So as a designer, you have to design that experience with a certain amount of humility in mind, uh, meaning you don't know all the answers, but you know enough to be a good guide. So that's a different mindset from believing that you are the holder of the uh, keys to the kingdom, because teachers simply don't hold the keys to the kingdom anymore. The keys are out there on the airwaves. So that really requires a teacher to be, take a kind of a humble attitude, if you will, very open-minded, very flexible. At the same time, very much a leader and very much cognizant of the kind of knowledge they do have that can be useful to students and knowing when to offer that knowledge at the right time. So you have to be very sensitive to students. You have to sort of know them. That's just where the personalization comes in. PBL works much better in a Personalized culture in the classroom in which you are respectful and knowledgeable about each of your students so that you can sort of uh, tailor your instruction to them and know when to let them go and know when, if you let them go, when they're likely to fail or how they're likely to succeed. Uh, it's very interested in PBL. When you do a lot of teamwork, uh, the teams can function very well or not function very well. I would say one of the Achilles heels of uh, PBL teachers is getting their teams to work well because it requires the skill of facilitation and coaching. It was something we do not teach teachers at all anywhere that I can see. No, that is true. How do you coach? We, We talk about teachers coaching other teachers as instructional coaches, but we don't teach teachers to use, for example, what they would use in industry, which is very, sort of known coaching protocols, meaning when you approach a student, you ask questions before telling, you use good eye contact and body language, you're open, you reply in an open-ended manner. I mean, these are sort of simple known coaching protocols that teachers many teachers practice simply because they know how to do it but we don't really train people to do that which is what we're eventually going to have to do as we go have more pbl so the skill set is is changing uh, kind of dramatically in that sense. And I would say the third area is uh, teaching 21st century skills. So we talk a lot about this all the time. I'm sure you've had many, many conversations about 21st century skills, but to actually be able to assess a team and see whether they're collaborating well, uh, that's difficult. Uh, I actually, when I talk to P- PBL teachers, I tell them that uh, the the goal In working with teams is to welcome disruption, which is the antithesis of what teachers think they're supposed to do. They don't want any disruption or any chaos. But in fact, when kids are working in a team of four or five or three, you're going to see them in their native environment and you're going to see their personalities emerge which you can either say I'm going to put a lid on because I got to get work done, or you can say, you know what, now I see who they are. Now I can coach them. And I encourage the coaching aspect of it because the process of PBL is as important or more important than the final product. Yeah. That, that piece, the process of PBL is as important
0: or more important than the final product. That is so important. You know, it's interesting. One of the challenges even in a school with teachers, is the idea of having like a leadership team or other committees or teams and that idea of welcoming disruption. That is really challenging for teachers. Nobody wants to disagree with the principal or with anybody else. We've got this culture of nice where we want to always, you know, make everybody happy and feel good and all that stuff, which is, which is wonderful at its core. But then when it prevents us from having the difficult conversations that we need to have, then we, we just continue being mediocre and never rising to the level that we could rise to if we had some of that welcomed
1: disruption, as you called it. Yes, it even comes up uh, when you're talking about the role of the teacher as designer. So, to be a designer, you don't work by yourself in isolation. A no designer out in the real world does that. So, when you're designing projects, um, you really have to work with colleagues. And so, When I'm working with teachers, uh, we do tuning protocols, which is a great tool for showing teachers how to interact with one another. But they really need to be reminded to be to critique as designers, meaning you have to say to your fellow teacher, you know what, that driving question you've set up doesn't make sense to me. I don't think it's going to work. And that is something that we actually don't do a lot of in education. Everything is, oh, that sounds wonderful. And you could do this, and we add on like 100 activities, uh, instead of actually questioning the underlying uh, assumptions about how this project is going to be designed. So a lot of my work in that area is helping teachers become good critique, uh, become uh, good critics of projects in a kind, respectful way. So how do we teach
0: teachers to do that? Because that, that I mean, that's a huge question that I know we don't have time for, but in our short time here, what's something we can do to teach teachers to be critiquers?
1: Well, one place that's obvious to start is with schools of education, and maybe spending a little bit less time on classroom management and the history of education and reading every work by John Dewey and instead kind of focus on some personal skills that are required to actually teach 21st century skills to students because if you don't possess those skills you can't really teach them and so if i had my druthers i would put uh, every new teacher in a new in their first semester of their of their credential program through some sort of personal profile and self evaluation of their skills and mindset so that you develop sort of a sense of these are my areas for growth. So if you're not a good listener, you're never going to teach good communication skills and you're not going to hit that C for sure. So now that's changing schools of education is a, uh, seems to be a bigger task than we are capable of handling at the moment. So I, myself, I I approach it by having some very serious conversations with teachers about what is their mindset and skill set before they even start doing projects and have them evaluate, and look at themselves a little bit. So this is very similar to what's done in industry these days. When managers and new employees and everybody gets together to try to get this work done, there's always a lot of sort of assessment of what are your strengths, what are your challenges, where are you trying to go. So we, I think we need to bring that whole spirit of um, self-analysis and inquiry into the teaching profession. And so it's really a required part. You have to sort of look at yourself as an individual. It's very interesting with PBL. You can almost meet somebody in the first 10 minutes and tell them whether they, and, and ascertain what kind of projects they're going to do. Someone who's close, someone who's not flexible, not open-minded, is not going to do good projects and is not going to be successful at PBL. Now, there's the opposite side. You can be too open and to go back to something you mentioned at the top of the podcast. You're just not turning kids loose as well into discovery learning. So you just have to sort of take a, a good look at yourself. And that's something I, I, I spent a lot of time doing in my workshops. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I do at my school is I
0: have teachers take a disc personality profile and, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. 16personalities.com Myers Briggs, which I think is the same thing as that or, or a strengths finder or whatever it is. The benefit of it is that it gives us a framework for talking about it. That when we have that framework, then we're not as sensitive about it because we can see others' strengths and weaknesses and, and things like that. And I found that just having that framework makes a huge difference in being able to do so many more things that we just we haven't been able to do before. So my leadership team, we have that at the top of our running agenda. A link to everybody's profile so we can go in there at any time and look at it. And many times before I go have a difficult conversation with a teacher, I review their disk profile and see what I need to do to adjust the way I'm communicating so they can hear the message that I'm actually sending them.
1: Well, no wonder you call your podcast The Transformative Principle. That's pretty transformative, Jethro, and that is way beyond where most principles are operating, but I I absolutely applaud that. It doesn't really require, as you're really stating yourself, you don't have to do extensive therapy. Uh, all you have to do is raise some awareness here so that folks are taking an inward look as well as an outer look at their skills, and it's very useful not just for teaching, but in life these days. So I think that's great. It's just a reminder and it gives you sort of a sense of of, uh, of growth that is very necessary to become, I would say a good project-based learning teacher and to add to that really to become a good 21st century teacher in general.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I, I would like to talk as specifically about what the future of PBL looks like because as with anything that – I mean, if you're professing to be project-based learning, you've got to recognize that things are going to change as tools, technology, the world, everything changes. So let's start talking about what the future of project-based learning looks like.
1: Well, uh, project-based learning, at least in my estimation, is definitely in flux. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of a retrospective, uh, PBL surged. Uh, It definitely has what I call escape velocity. Lots of PBL going on in all sorts of schools. And a lot of it, I would say, is uh, still sort of an extension of the delivery method. Um, And we're still doing PBL kind of coverage, or we're doing PBL as a very brief two-day activity and calling it PBL. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. So one of the things that I, and again, many of the people been involved in PBL for a number of years are doing, is to try to really set up what is high-quality PBL. Now, there is a high-quality PBL movement that has been very useful in, in identifying six essential principles of high-quality PBL like authenticity and collaboration and deeper learning and intellectual challenge and so forth. And I think that's great. I see some other things coming up. The conversation on social-emotional learning is front and center for everyone in uh, the U.S. and in any country that you go to. And social-emotional learning and project-based learning are really one and the same, We just have to get better articulating that. Uh, Actually, I view project-based learning as a uh, human performance method, not as a content acquisition method. It's really designed to help people grow and become more skillful. That's what it's about. And I could give you a little history on that from the 60s when PBL originated as problem-based learning. It actually was tied to that originally. So uh, integrating social-emotional learning into PBL is, uh, I would say, a critical task, meaning, for example, if you're going to have kids working in teams, how are they going to operate as team members? What's their level of accountability, their level of persistence, and most most important, what's their level of empathy and humility? So you see some of these studies coming out of organizations like Google and so forth. They've identified that the chief characteristic of a team member in successful teams is humility, the ability to sit back and listen to somebody and truly Kind of open your mind to somebody else's ideas. That's a social emotional learning piece, and that kind of spirit needs to be incorporated into PBL. Uh, In general, that leads into a second development I think is really critical, and that's getting a lot better at uh, having these teams of students produce quality work. Right now, we're still a little bit in uh, the group mentality, even to some extent, the cooperative learning mentality. Uh, which to me is a little bit outdated. How do you get deep collaboration in a team? Partly through what I just said about empathy, humility, but also accountability, stepping up, becoming a leader, knowing how to listen. So breaking down collaboration skills into specific skills that you need to operate successfully within a team. Not necessarily a team, a large team, but more and more actually people are using the word teaming rather than teamwork your ability to work with larger or small groups or one-on-one and then the last one that i think is coming up is design thinking so one of the sort of soft spots if you will in pbl has been what happens in the middle of the project so teachers are pretty good at setting up a problem or a question they know that at the end of the project the students are presenting publicly But what happens in that middle of the project has been sort of a mystery to many PBL teachers. And they think, well, do I just teach as normal? And yes, you do. And I have teams or group work as normal, yes. But really incorporating the design thinking process into the middle of the project. So you're teaching kids to actually go through the empathy, the ideate, the test, the the prototype, the test, design process, I think is the next step for PBL. And I've actually spent a lot of time quite recently actually designing a pbl method that uses design thinking and design strategies as part of the project based learning process yeah that piece is so
0: incredibly powerful and i just want to share a quick story about that that people on this podcast may have have heard before we had a situation in the last school as a principal at where the students were the lunch ladies were cleaning up lunch before students got before all the students were fed and we looked at that issue and thought there's a problem here obviously why is it that kids are not getting lunch and and missing out and they're coming up to lunch line and there's they're already done they're cleaned up and then they're getting upset that that kids weren't there and and all that and we looked at that and we started with that empathy piece well we didn't actually we had some other solution that we thought would solve it. And obviously it didn't. Kids were still missing. So then we did the design thinking process and looked at why are kids, let's go find out from the kids why they're not getting lunch. So we just hung out in the cafeteria (laughs) for one lunch period is all it took. (laughs) And, and we were always there anyway, but we paid attention this time to what was happening. And we saw that kids were coming into lunchroom, sitting down and then um, talking with their friends. And then when the line got down then they would go up and get their lunch. And what we when we asked them why they were doing that, they said the line was too long, and it took too long to get their lunch, and they didn't want to wait in line for 10 minutes before they got their lunch. So we said, okay, so what can we do to fix this? And the first thing we did is we said, okay, you have to get your lunch before you go sit down. That just made the line really long. So then we did a little thing, and we said, let's take our lunch lady who – Get who does the numbers and and collects the money. Let's make it so she doesn't collect any money and the money all goes through the office and kids just put their numbers in. So we did that and that got a little bit better. And then we iterated and said, let's make it so there are two stations where kids can enter their lunch numbers. And with that, we were able to get all the kids through in instead of 20 minutes in a 30 minute lunch, we were able to get them through in seven minutes or something like that. It was a drastic reduction just by adding that one little thing in. And then kids because the time went by because they went through the line so quickly they didn't need to worry about that and that or worry about not getting their food and standing in line not talking with their friends and so that little thing of you know 30 minutes of my time as a principal figuring out that problem and solving it using the design thinking process totally changed how our lunchroom was run and behavior issues went down because kids weren't hungry. (laughs) They were getting their food quickly. And it was just amazing to see how using that process, and we very specifically used a design thinking process to go through that and make sure that it was working effectively for our students. And what a fun thing to do. And then when you teach kids how to do that, then they, when they follow it, then they see the same kinds of positive results. And the great thing about it is that It's never done because you just say, okay, what's the new problem? What still isn't working perfectly and things never work perfectly. So you always have room for improvement and kids can deal with that a lot better when they understand that that's exactly the
1: case, that things aren't always perfect and it's okay. I love that example. It's a perfect example, probably had a lot of unintended consequences like the teachers with the afternoon classes probably had more settled down classes because kids weren't so hungry. <laughs> so that's great. Exactly. Uh, yeah, perfect example. And I would just extend that a little bit. Uh, I often say to teachers who want to do projects and they're kind of like searching around for ideas, I said, within a mile of your school, there are 100 projects waiting. There are just all sorts of issues to solve. Yeah. And so one of the, obviously one of the aspects of PBL is authenticity. And now you've had an authentic problem in the lunchroom. That's perfect. But there's a lot of authentic problems just waiting outside also for kids to work on. I, and I should mention that probably when you ask about the future of PBL, I think more and more PBL is going to be uh, aimed at service and social entrepreneurship and the common good. Now, in my view, uh, the way the world is changing and what's necessary and where kids want to go, as you can see by Parkland and some of these other events, uh, kids want to be more involved in the issues of the day. And PBL is a perfectly good way to do that while still retaining some sense of order and knowledge and accountability and learning and so forth. But I think that's going to be part of the future of PBL Uh, myself, I don't see how the whole standards-based movement is going to contain over the next two decades what needs to be done in the world. And I think we're going to see some pushback and some shifts. So PBL, very service-oriented and very applicable to service learning.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm working on right now is in my district, creating a researching a K-12 magnet school where the focus will be competency-based learning that is based on solving problems. And so instead of starting with the standards and then trying to get the kids to reach those, we start with a problem and we figure out what standards the kids passed or met or understood through that process. And one of the, the big issues already is, and we're just starting, so we're in the beginning stages. One of the big issues already is the idea that they learn so much more than just whatever they're supposed to learn in that grade. Just a quick story to help illustrate that. My daughter is in kindergarten right now. And she, at the beginning of this calendar year, we set goals as a family and she wanted her goal to be able to read by the end of the year. And you know, she didn't really understand that, uh, what that really meant or anything, but that's okay. She set this goal and she then every single day, made sure that she was reading and was working hard at it every single day, which was really cool to see. But her goal of reading was great and wonderful. And I'm glad she can read. But what was really amazing, Tom, was that her understanding that she could set a goal and achieve it like that can't be measured in any school project as it is right now. But for me as a parent, Her being able to see that she can set a goal and achieve it is just incredible to me because that is way more important than her skill of actually reading. Because if she can set a goal and achieve it, she can learn to read or she can learn anything else in the world. Or she can do anything that she wants because she understands now that when you set a goal, you work on it every single day and you achieve something. That's way more important, and we don't have standards for that. You mentioned social, emotional learning. We don't have standards for a lot of those things, but those are way more important for our kids' long-term success
1: than any of the standards that we have in school. Absolutely, and I know that's a, a huge issue, and I'm sure that you've had many folks on your podcast discussing this, um, but the standards are not capable of containing what needs to be known and learned in the world today uh they're just not going to hold up i don't think i just think we're in a transformative period and i know it seems slow but i think we're in a transformative period where the iceberg is going to reverse and these i don't really call it social emotional learning i don't care for that term but this concept of personal strengths and skillful behavior and intelligence as successful behavior not IQ, is going to come to the fore and going to become more important because the world is demanding it. And we're trying to figure out how you do that. And at the same time, have something called a certificated program of learning. And I think you're ahead in the right direction. It's going to become competency-based. And I would even add, I'm involved with some other organizations. I'm involved with something called Z School. We're looking at kids, whatever they learn actually goes into to their own competency base and is certificated by themselves using blockchain credentials. So we're going to come to the point where it's not going to be the school that is going to confer the credentials. The kids are going to look at the credentials and prove they've done it. And then they're going to put that on their, in their blockchain (laughs) uh, master transcript, if you
0: will. Oh man, now you're, now you're scratching the niche for me. So that, that idea of, okay, so here's one of my big frustrations we have accrediting organizations that accredit schools and say, this school is accredited because we say so. And that that's all it is. It's nothing more than because we said so and because we say so about all these other schools, that means that they're all accredited as well. And that's how we measure whether or not a school is you know, worthy of whatever, you know, like you can't get federal loans to a non-accredited university, but the only thing that makes it accredited is they filled out paperwork with some organization that says, yes, now you're accredited. And so our grades are called our high school transcripts, all those things. They are basically only as valuable as anybody happens to assign value to them. And it's a totally made up system. It is not, sustainable or meaningful anywhere besides that place that says, yes, this matters. And that idea of students proving and adding their competency to the blockchain, that just sounds fascinating to me because that is, it seems like that's what we really need to have. We need something else that isn't just us saying this is good because we said so. We need something else that demonstrates that. And in, in business, it's your valuable if you provide value and people give you money, we need something like that in education that says you've learned this because here's how we know you learned it. And and in business, that's people give you money. In education, it's, you know, a grade could mean anything. And so it, it doesn't, therefore, that it doesn't mean anything at all.
1: I'm totally with you on that. Um, and I think that is going to What that demands of us as educators is that we're going to have to get much, much better at designing uh, deep performance rubrics that kids can measure their performance against so they can make some sort of judgment as to where they are on the spectrum of uh, competency. That's something that has to come. I'm sure you're working on that yourself, and we have you have to have some sort of system that uh, has a as a foundation. So you can't have just anybody kind of going off. Say I'm competent at this. They have to be able to demonstrate it against an accepted standard. And uh, one of my things that I talk to is we we got lots of standards, but as you say, we have no standards for the things that really count. And uh, in today's world, so we have to develop those. And kids will get better at this. And the other thing sort of along with this, Jethro, is, is, again, you know this, uh, there's a lot of evidence. I I do a lot of work. Uh, I wrote a book called Redefining Smart that actually – isn't focused on project-based learning, it's focused on what's the nature of intelligence in today's world. And uh, I believe that uh, if you look at some of the research going on in the fields of like social neuroscience, they're they're making a very strong case that what we learn is uh, in the airwaves and the kids are learning stuff so much that we don't know the whole curriculum, the curriculum is the world these days. if it yeah. will. It's not what's contained in the textbooks. And this is tricky for us. I'm not saying it's an easy one for any of us because it's so new that it's going to take a lot of imaginative thinking over a period of time to figure out how this all is uh, sort of. Uh, documented, but it's happening. And I think the move towards competency-based learning, blockchain, performance rubrics, all this is in the we're trying to figure this out uh, sort of a, and it is a uh, fly the plane as you're building it kind of situation. It's difficult.
0: Yeah, but that's, that's what we have to do. When you talk about 21st century learning, I really believe that it is that idea of co-learners rather than teachers and students or teachers and learners, because we don't know, as the adults, everything that is possible. And so it's really presumptive of us to say, this is what you need to know. You know, I just had a conversation with someone the other day who said, how are we in this changing way that we're teaching? How are we going to prepare kids for high school? And we're talking about language arts specifically. And I said, look, I'm not interested in preparing kids for high school. I'm interested in teaching kids to be better communicators than they were when they got here. Is that an easy thing to measure and say, here's the." the line and this is this is the standard that we're trying to meet no that's not easy but we have to be dynamic and flexible and meet these kids where they're at and then move them up whatever thing rubric whatever you want to call it that we're designing to help them be as successful as they personally can be in that moment and that is like you said that is not easy but that's the right thing to do and that's what we've got to do for our students. And that's a that's a big challenge, but a challenge that is so exciting,
1: Tom. Uh, yes, I totally agree. It is a challenge. It's a challenge of the day for adults as educators, really the challenge of the day for adults period. And uh, when you're undertaking that challenge is to kind of bring this back to PBL in your classroom, you're trying to be a really good PBL teacher. You're really trying to address these issues on the ground in real time maybe not done perfectly but really trying to do that and i say to teachers when you're doing that you're in one of the most creative professions in the world right now and and making one of the most noble efforts that you can make and uh, i like to say that because you know you hear the complaining from teachers they're in bad situations they feel disempowered they Etc. Etc. I say, you know, maybe that's true in certain schools, but in places where the PBL and the personalization is happening, I find the teachers to be bubbling with excitement and creativity. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. And
0: Tom, this is, this has been a wonderful conversation. I think you and I could probably talk for a long time because I have a bunch more questions, but I want to respect your time and, and get to my last question of the day, which is, After all we've talked about, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you?
1: Well, this is going to sound like a commercial plug, Jethro, but uh, I honestly believe that every teacher ought to have some basic training in project-based learning. Number one, if they want to do projects. Number two, to understand the philosophy. And the only way we're ever going to do that is to do it online. There aren't enough workshop hours in the day to do it. There aren't enough people who know this field to do it. So I really, that's the reason I started PBL Global and put two really good online PBL programs up there. One is on the how of PBL. And the second one relates to a lot of our conversation. How do you become an inquiry-based teacher? What is the skill set, mindset that you need to have. So I'm sorry if that sounds a little commercial, but that's my goal. We just got to spread the gospel as, as wide and far as possible.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And so PBL Global, um, how do people access that and get to it? PBLglobal.com. It's all there. Nice and easy. I like that. Tom, thank you so much for being a part of Transformative Principle today.
1: My pleasure, Jethro. Great conversation. I really appreciate it.